The jury decided that Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams breached the copyright of Marvin Gaye's 1977 hit, Got to Give It Up. They awarded over seven million US dollars in damages to the late soul singer's family. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing on this Wednesday morning with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The strongest U.S. dollar in 12 years sinks U.S. stocks. China's disinflation eased in February thanks to holiday spending and China's factory output and retail sales numbers are to be released later today. The S&P 500 has posted its biggest decline in two months on increasing views that the U.S. Fed may raise rates as soon as June. MGH Asset Management's Michael Gibbs-Harris joins us from New Zealand this morning to talk about the impact on world markets. We'll also take a look at China's consumer price index readings with Bering Asset Management's Kim Do. And our final guest this morning uh, will be able to answer some questions if you are looking for online credit options. That's Simon Lung of WeLab. City Trust's Stuart Oldcroft is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So the U.S. dollar is almost at par with the euro. Stuart, is this economically significant or do people just like round numbers? Both. <laughs> yes. Um, it, well, I think it's it, it's the sort of thing that you're expecting to have with the US dollar getting stronger, euro getting weaker, and the two coming together um, will probably be quite a surprise. But on the other hand, uh, um, no, it's not economically significant, but uh, it, it is what is expected. All right. Well, Sebastian Gray is a forex strategist at SockGen, and he agrees with you. He says that uh, parity doesn't have any economic meaning at all. Most of America is actually, you know, built on internal consumption. That means they're essentially, uh, you know, we're boosting the U.S. consumer. It's going to help a little bit the Eurozone. Actually, if uh, the Eurozone picks up a little bit on the back of uh, the U.S. recovery, it might all be uh, quite good for the U.S. because the U.S., like Eurozone, exports really high added value goods. So the better the Eurozone does, the better the U.S. does, maybe. That said, he does worry about it from an earnings point of view. Some people might not be well hedged, and that really is a question you want to ask the different CEOs is why they didn't hedge properly. That's an interesting question. Over the long term, as they roll their hedges, even if they've done a good job, then there will be an issue. I think versus developed market, like the Eurozone, it's not too much of an issue. Versus emerging market, this is where the pile of cash is. This is, not the, this is where they were really exposed if they didn't do a good job. But the move to parity is not without pain. So the question is then, is this a currency war? If you look at the, the Eurozone, if you look at Japan, what the U.S. has accepted is that they're resetting the button in, the, in terms of labor. European labor is too expensive. They employ people like me who are, you know, overly fat, not productive enough. Um, and then they have basically to, uh, they have to adapt, right? And reset the, they have to reset the level. That is accepted by, by the U.S., which is a good news. There are currency wars. You can see that particularly in the case of Russia, where there have been tits or tats hitting the portfolio channel in Russia pretty hard and being quite successful at it. In the case of the rest of Asia, there is 
some management of currencies. They are actually quite uh, expensive in many cases, so they might let their currency weaken. In that case, would not be a currency war. Wall Street stocks fell heavily on renewed worries about the soaring dollar and about interest rate rises uh, in June. The question then is whether investors feel like equities are topping off and you know whether they feel like they should be getting into fixed income. Here's what Monica Desenzo says. She's a U.S. equity strategist at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. I think generally people understand in this environment from a rate perspective, there's just not that many compelling opportunities. And so when you look at equities and the, you know, the U.S. economy feels very good today, people are yeah. finally starting to get over that hump they had a few years ago. And so it feels better to buy equities. You know, offshore, the investors are a bit different, but certainly I continue to see a lot of our offshore clients look to the U.S. as a relatively safe haven versus what they see in their own markets. The Dow dropped 332 points, nearly 2% to 17,662. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ both fell 1.7% to end at uh, 2,044 and 4,859, respectively. Let's uh, bring in our first guest, Michael Gibbs-Harris. He is asset management. Uh, dire- he is a director at MGH Asset Management, and he joins us on the phone now from New Zealand. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Sandra. Um, so, Michael, uh, talk about timing on the U.S. Fed rate hikes have been almost as volatile as markets. What does this mean for us here in this part of the world? Well, obviously, there's been an increase in the volatility of markets. I mean, you know, a five percent rise in the, in February for the for the American markets, and now a fairly sharp fall. And I think that um, the people have been expecting um, central banks to be data dependent, and as the data is coming through a little bit bit stronger in the U.S., the people are now bringing forward when they expect interest rates to go and start rising. And now people are talking about uh, June, whereas there were some people a few months ago talking about sometime in 2016. Uh, Hi, Mike. Stuart here. Yeah, hi, Stuart. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Um, Mike, I just wonder, you know, when you see all these movements in the markets, uh, to how, how often would you believe this is a sort of buying opportunity when it goes down and are people taking advantage of it or, or should people take a, a, a while to wait? I think in this particular case, there, there, there's, there's really no, no need to go and hurry. Um, Obviously, there are, you know, there are short-term opportunities if you're a, a, a trader, but it seems to be that there's quite a, a long, sort of drawn-out uh, view that uh, that the U.S. dollar will continue to go and uh, strengthen, and, and while that happens, that's probably going to go and hurt uh, markets in the rest of the world. So, if the U.S. dollar is getting stronger, of course, that means the cost of imports uh, and, and exports from the U.S. going up, uh, cost of imports going down. Is that good for China? Michael? I think that um, insofar as uh, uh, what's, what's been happening is, is that really the, the cost of, uh, of imports into China hasn't actually been, been going up because you know, it tends to go and import commodities and export uh, manufactured goods. And the manufactured goods have been going down in price for, for some time, but, but the, the commodity prices have been falling quite sharply as well. And you, know, you saw yesterday with a, with a record trade uh, surplus for China that... Uh, uh, Obviously, China is losing competitiveness against some of the other um, 
some of the other countries in in the region, but I don't think that it's too bad if it's if it's wanting to go and change from an investment in a manufacturing based economy to one that's more service oriented. It's, this is probably what it wants. So, so could we expect, for example, with this current uh, volatility in the U.S., we should expect to see more volatility in in the Asian markets as a consequence? Yeah, I think so, and it's it's sort of being uh, transferred via the both the, the the bond markets and via the, the currency markets. Um, you know, but bond yields have been all over the place. You know, uh, over the last few months, and and the the currency moves have been really quite large over the last um, six to nine months. Yeah, sure, but most of it has been strength in the dollar and weakness in most other currencies. Uh, so I, my my guess is that we should expect to see some more of this over the next few months. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, but also I think on 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 the bond side, which of course obviously you know, affects um, how you should be valuing it. Your equities. I mean, there's been some some really quite quite large moves in so far as the uh, you know, the U.S. ten years got down to about one and a half percent, and they're now back up to two point one. So, uh, Mike, in terms of, you know, where investors should be putting their money, we posed this question earlier. Are they sort of uh, um, getting uh, concerned about U.S. equities and wanting to put their money in fixed income? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I don't think there's much value in fixed income at all at the moment. Um, I think that probably one of the most attractive uh, um, instruments that's around is actually is the Hong Kong index-linked bonds, which are, you know, which are issued by the government of Hong Kong and are fairly short uh, um, duration um, instruments of one or two years, and they're sort of yielding probably about two two percent nominal in uh, in Hong Kong dollars. Okay. But um, I think that's a fairly defensive place to go uh, park cash. But uh, it doesn't look to me as though you know, outside uh, um, maybe Europe that uh, that you're going to see uh, rates fall and they're probably going to start rising. So when it comes to equities, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about U.S. equities versus European European equities, which uh, many analysts say are looking good, um, versus, of course, you know, Asian equities in this uh, part of the world. What are your thoughts? I think that the, what you what you saw in Japan and what you're now seeing in, in Europe is that it kind of tends to be what you make on the equities, you you end up losing on the currencies. And um, my, my personal feeling is that it's probably you know, still fairly attractive in, the, in both Hong Kong and China at the moment, where valuations are not too uh, uh, expensive. And certainly in China, it looks as though interest rates aren't going to go up and may, you know, may come down, down some more. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, there's been a, a slowing in the Chinese economy, but uh, a lot of that bad news seems to be in, in the price. All right, Mike. Thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Gibbs-Harris, and he is a director at MGH Asset Management in New Zealand. Everybody wants to look good, but before you undergo any beauty procedure, make sure you understand it well. Take the time to learn about the procedures involved. Who will perform it? What equipment will be used? And whether there are any risks of complications, such as infection or scarring. Beware of marketing tactics such as celebrity endorsements or presentation of complicated data. Think twice and check details before making any decisions. 
friends in life for free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. The time is now 8.15 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers before we move to our next segment. Uh, the Nikkei is down 78 points to 18,586. Australia's ASX index is down 66 points to 5,728. And Seoul's Kospi down seven-tenth of a percent to 1,970. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.07 U.S. dollars almost at par. Uh, one US dollar is currently trading at 121 Japanese yen and one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 69 cents. Well, China's uh, disinflation eased in February after the central bank stepped up policy easing and the Lunar New Year holiday pushed up food and transport costs. Uh, Bering Asset Management's head of Asian multi-assets, Kim Do, joins us now to discuss what this means. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. So there has been some worry about deflation in China, but uh, the consumer price index for Feb actually climbed to 1.5%, uh, higher than uh, what was forecast by economists. What are you making of the news? I think that um, given the Chinese New Year and the fact that, you know, basically all the factories and all the gardens, all the food gardens and vegetable gardens are shut down during that period and people are consuming in a very big way uh, to celebrate the Chinese New Year. So I thought that, that you know, it's impossible really to predict what the prices will do during that time. So, so the prices did go up. But if you look at non-food prices, for instance, in the, in the month of February, it was below 1% annualized. And uh, if one looks at uh, some other measures, like the uh, producer price index, which is a price which is, a price which is um, uh, obtainable or achievable by the producers, it is also very low as well. So, so we think that, that um, prices will come back to more uh, natural levels, uh, which is some, something close to about 1% per annum growth in the um, inflation rate in China. So you feel that companies uh, uh, don't look like they will regain price power anywhere in the near term? Well, no, the, the economy in China is still um, quite slow. The, late, the, the, the fourth quarter GDP numbers show that it is barely growing at about a, a rate of 6% annualized growth rate. And so that's why the central bank has had to ease monetary policy. So, so if anything, we think that the downside risk um, in the Chinese economy remain quite high in terms of growth, and therefore it's unlikely that inflation can really rise in that environment. Kim Stewart here. Um, when I um, hear that you're talking about inflation coming down again from the 1.5% or thereabouts, and yet China is targeting a 3% annual inflation rate, how is it going to achieve that? I think it is going to be very difficult for China to achieve this unless, unless food prices, or let's say in China there is... Um, always um, um, a, a very famous um, um, food, food, uh, food price in particular to watch, which is pork price. I mean, if, if, you, if, if there's an, uh, an epidemic um, in, 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 uh, in, in the uh, in growing piglets, and if pork price triple or quadruple, 
over the year, then maybe it would have a massive impact on the on the inflation rate. But uh, and, and then could you sort of remind us why China wants to have a 3% inflation rate? I think that these are just general forecasts. It's like the way U.S. or Germany wants to have a 2% inflation. And I think that it is more of a long-term um, wish kind of um, uh, measure rather than um, a, a, two, a 2015 um, forecast. Kim, um, how much of a concern then would you say is deflation in China? <clears throat> I think it is real um, because when you look at the the, the producer prices, price index, which is the, the, the price which is received by the producers, it has been negative for years. So that means that um, <clears throat> producers in China have had very, a very tough time to try to be able to sell their goods and services at the rising price. If anything, the price has been falling. All right, Kim. Um, We've got a few numbers that we are expecting to be released later today. Uh, China's factory output and retail sales numbers. Uh, Any thoughts on, uh, you know, what these might be? What are you expecting? Um, Retail sales may be um, impacted by the Chinese New Year, and and so would the factory orders output. So I think that when we look at February numbers, we have to be very careful. So the way I do that is that I add the January and February numbers together. And, and uh, so I think that would be one way to try to iron out the um, Chinese New Year effect. And getting back to inflation number, when you add the January and the February numbers together, it adds up to about 1% annualized growth rate. All right, Kim. Thank you so much. Always great to have you on Money for Nothing. That's thank a you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this morning. That is Kim Do, and he is the head of Asian Multi Assets at Bering Asset Management. Come on, baby, light my fire. The time is now 8.21 a.m. And if you could pay something, pay for something, just using your Twitter address, would you do that? Barclays Bank is going to offer that service uh, from uh, Tuesday in the U.K. Barclays, like uh, many banks, have a mobile payment service called Pingit. And the new Twitter service will be available to all Pingit customers, whether they bank with Barclays or not. David Birch is an expert on payment systems from Consult Hyperion, and he explains how it works. Well, actually, it works in a similar way to the way it works now. So right now, if I send you money using Pingit, I send it to your mobile phone number. And the system looks up your mobile phone number and then matches it to a bank account. And it's the same thing that's happening here, except you're using your Twitter name rather than your mobile phone number. And actually, I think that's better to be completely honest, for a couple of reasons. Um, The first is that you don't always want to give your mobile phone number to somebody that you want to pay you. And if you think of silly examples, I might want to pay, I don't know, the plumber or the dentist or someone, they might not want to give me their personal mobile phone number. And so they give me a, a Twitter name instead. And that's good. There's some privacy associated with that. But also, Twitter names can be fun and interesting and I quite like the idea of if somebody owes me some money, I can say, them, well, just send it to at Dave is broke or something. So, Stuart, uh, he likes the idea of Twitter names, at Dave is broke. Do you like the idea of at Stuart is not broke? 
Well, I am actually. But there we are. <laughs> no, I don't. I think that's, you know, banking is a much more serious business than he was making it out to be. You know, it's real money, and it's uh, uh, and um, I'd love to know that uh, he's managed to get his compliance officers to agree that this is okay. Absolutely. You know, banking is uh, it can be stressful. It can be stressful in the banks. It certainly can yeah, be stressful online. There's a, a online. lot of risks involved. You know, transferring people's money and. Uh, and paying people, you know, how many times have we heard these horror stories about it? Exactly. Well, hand in hand yeah. with that goes, uh, you know, the idea of lending and borrowing money, which can also be stressful and time consuming. And in fact, after the financial crisis in, of 2008, it's become more difficult because traditional credit avenues have been tightened. Uh, our last guest this morning is We Labs finder Simon Lung. And uh, he talks to us about online lending and how this has shaken up the way traditional Traditional lending works. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. Um, so, Simon, you own both uh, WeLend.hk and China. What exactly are these two businesses? So, in Hong Kong, we run uh, one of the leading online lending platform. Basically, uh, consumers can come up to apply for a loan. Uh, it, it is a more efficient mean and, and cheaper as well in terms of interest rate than the traditional alternatives. Um, it, the, the, the real innovation is actually not in uh, putting your application form online because that's something that uh, a lot of banks can already do, right? But I think the innovation is actually the efficiency and accessibility uh, to financial services. Like, for example, the innovation for us is like, how do we approve a loan uh, in a particular customer segment Customer segment that previously uh, banks or uh, consumer finance company find it difficult? That, I mean, that is a great question. How do you approve a loan? I mean, I... I think possibly the scariest thing out there is to lend money to someone when you may not have been able to screen that person effectively or how do you even know? That's a very good question. I mean, um, our, our technology, actually, we're actually a very technology-focused company. Our technology allow us to understand uh, the willingness or ability for an individ- individual to repay us without actually physically meeting the customer itself. So that involves uh, collecting a lot of data and data points and information about the individual from what the individual is telling us, their behavioral, transactional, um, uh, the credit bureau data, and we use the data, we crunch the data uh, to, to form an opinion on this particular individual and priced individual in a way that uh, we're comfortable with. So are you offering sort of more competitive interest rates perhaps than uh, what we could get through traditional lending? Yes. Uh, a, a very simple example, right? I mean, we, we get these from customers verbatim a lot is, let's say a customer is uh, revolving on their credit card for around 30-ish percent. Um, but when they come to us, we evaluate the credit. Um, maybe it is just something that is like 10-ish percent. So they save on almost uh, two-thirds of it. Um, that is a very uh, common uh, borrowing purpose in Hong Kong. Um, another one is borrowing for investment. Um, a lot of people do that too. So how do you cap the levels, uh, you know, that pe- or the amounts, I should say, that people borrow? Is it are there s- standard cap caps or is it just based on each individual? It's very customized based on individuals um, and also the pricing as well, right? That's how we can uh, achieve the uh, accessibility and efficiency. So basically, we, we look at the individual's uh, affordability, income, um, monthly expenses, um, credit history uh, to make uh, such decisions. And in terms of actually raising the money to create these lending platforms, where do you go out and get your funding? So uh, we run very different businesses 
businesses in Hong Kong and China. Hong Kong is predominantly uh, balance sheet lending, so we lend from our own capital. China, it's uh, it's very common. It's a, it's a P2P platform, which is uh, basically uh, individuals to individuals. Um, what we The way we look at this is I think the innovation is not so much in the funding. I think the business model, be it balance sheet lending or P2P lending, uh, a lot of people can do it. A lot of people are doing it. But it is actually uh, the, the innovation, as I said, right, is actually in, in the borrower side. How do you process? How do you uh, approve uh, a loan? In, in, a, in a way that others cannot. So, Simon, you know, I mean, places like Hong Kong and China still, uh, you know, relatively are more sophisticated just in terms of their financial uh, framework, if you will. Could you take the same business model and, you know, uh, transplant it in a completely developing economy, which doesn't have things like credit bureaus and which has sort of lowly entrepreneurs, you know, the cobbler and uh, the shoemaker and that kind of thing, um, you know, and and replicate it to success in a situation like that? Absolutely. Actually, in fact, that's what we did. We first started off in Hong Kong one and a half years ago where we developed the technology that allowed us to do so on PC and mobile. And earlier last year, we moved the same technology to China. Well, the first place we look at is student segments. Students tr- traditionally lacks a lot of data. They don't have credit bureau. It's very hard to approve them. And we actually use data to get a very cl- clear understanding of individuals. When you say data, what, what kind of data? Oh, it, it mainly like individual data, demographics, transactional data. Um, in a student example, it's like what degree they're studying, which school, uh, if they are borrowing from someone else from the past, are they, be, are they repaying their loans? How are they doing on their phone bills? Uh, stuff like that. Um, and, and then we, we're extending this um, this year as well. So uh, it, 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 in, in, the, in the coming months, uh, we're going to expand this to, to do sales finance and even uh, interestingly, rule lending in China. It is basically, uh, as I said, innovation is credit accessibility. Previously, uh, where there's lack of data or information on individuals, you find it very difficult to approve a loan. But how do we actually, with the innovative use of collection and use of data, to, to form an opinion on the individual so that we can process it? Stuart, what do you think? I mean, if well, I'm studying for a good degree, this is I mean, this is an inter- I mean, it's a really interesting way because a lot of the people who want to borrow want have you know, the speed with which they want to get the money available is very important. They don't like the bureaucracy that is often presented to them. So presumably, these are things that you're overcoming. Uh, and Simon, maybe you could just uh, sort of say, what, what's the sort of minimum loan? Are there any maximum loans as well? Um, it depends on the customer segment. For example, in Hong Kong, um, because we have such a low proce- uh, such a low processing cost, right? So we can do from a few thousand dollars to uh, I think we're doing in Hong Kong a few hundred thousand dollars, like three hundred thousand Hong Kong yeah. dollars. Uh, in China, for students, we, are, we talk about around three thousand RMB or so. So it's small ticket size, very fast processing. Um, take around what um, five to ten seconds to make the decision, and then uh, customers can complete the transaction. Very almost customer friendly, friendly Very customer friendly. Almost all of them can complete it within 24 hours. Yeah. All right. So uh, very interesting stuff. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is Simon Lung, and he is the founder and director of WeLab. Thank you, Simon. A quick look at the numbers before we close up the show. The Nikkei is down 12 points to 18,652. Australia's ASX index is down 64 points to 5,729. And Seoul's Kospi uh, down 7 tenths of a percent to 1,900. 
970. Stuart, uh, parting thoughts for the day in 20 seconds or less? No, I think it's going to be a bit of a difficult day on stock markets this this day, maybe for the rest of the week. Uh, very volatile, a uh, lot of things to be concerned about. Um, hopefully next week will come about quickly. All right, Stuart, thank you uh, for joining us uh, always uh, as guest host You're on welcome. For Wednesday. Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust and I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today will be cloudy to overcast with one or two rain patches cool in the morning. The temperature right now is 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 78%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Sam Butler. Investigations are underway in Argentina into the collision between two helicopters which killed eight French nationals, including three prominent sports personalities. Both Argentine pilots also died. Argentine civil aviation investigators are due to be joined by French experts and officials from the helicopter's manufacturer. Veteran democracy campaigner Martin Lee has called on Canada to back Hong Kong's fight for universal suffrage. He was speaking to the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee in Ottawa, despite objections from Beijing. Janice Wong reports. The co-founder of the Democratic Party told the Foreign Affairs Committee that he hoped the Canadian government and the Canadian Parliament would speak up for Hong Kong at this difficult stage. He said if the SAR continues down the slippery slope as now, 